Welcome to Sundial. I'm Carlos Frias. If you close your eyes and let M. Evelina Galong tell you about the city of Manila, it starts to sound a lot like Miami. She draws a line in her writing from her Filipino ancestry to Latino Miami. Thick, humid air, fallen mangoes, unbearable sunshine. You have abuelas and lolas standing in line at the grocery store. Tios and titos toiling in family restaurants. Evelina's writing is filled with familiar images, especially if you're from South Florida. Grandmothers talking to long-dead husbands remind you of abuelitas at the Botanicas on Calle Ocho. Evelina is the American-born daughter of Filipino immigrants. She grew up in the Midwest. But for more than 20 years, she's been writing under a South Florida sun. As an author, a short story writer, and a teacher of creative writing at the University of Miami. Her latest collection of short stories is When the Hibiscus Falls. Her writing reflects a strong tie to her ancestors' culture and a life down here. Here she finds herself speaking Tagalog to her Spanish-speaking neighbors and being understood. To talk to us about finding a common language in a different kind of tropical home is M. Evelina Galong. Evelina, welcome. Hey, thank you, Carlos. Thank you so much for having me. It's so lovely to be able to have uh, you here to talk about these connections because um, reading your writing, it feels so South Florida, which of course makes sense because you've been here for 20 years, uh, yeah. which I think qualifies you as a local, right? Oh, yeah, I think so. I think so. <laughs> and yet there is this, um, there's this thing about your background, both being born American, but also writing with such authority over your culture, your the mm-hmm. culture your parents grew up mm-hmm. in, uh, that I also find fascinating. Um, so I want to talk to you about all that. Um, this part that really stands out to me is you speaking Tagalog to your Spanish-speaking neighbors. Right. Like, tell me about that, about what that's been like, because I can hear it. Yeah, right? well, yes. So I think the first time I noticed it, so I came to South Florida in 2002, mm-hmm. and I was coming straight off of a plane from Manila. I was on a Fulbright and talking Tagalog pretty much for the last year. And so for me, I'm English speaking first. Mm -hmm. And so there was this whole thing when I was in the Philippines where I would have to translate from Tagalog to English and then answer it and then and then again, translate it back. Mm -hmm. I also studied Spanish. Right. Oh, so you you had all these languages They're jumbled all in, up in your head. They yeah. were all in my head, and I didn't think anything of it. I mean, the first few months, it was very exhausting at the end of the day because there was a lot of silent translating going on. Mm-hmm. And then I got here, and uh, with the locals, like I would get lost or whatever, and you know, finding my way around Miami and Miami traffic, mm-hmm. I would start speaking Tagalog. <laughs> and not thinking, right? Because thinking, oh, Spanish, but Tagalog would come out. Right. And then the people I met would answer me in Spanish as if they understood me. Oh, that's so funny. And I feel like, yeah, like I feel like I always like to say, it, and it always took me a moment because then there's a whole bunch of translating going on in the head. Mm-hmm. Right, with uh, three languages then. And um, and I would say, I would say, ano, 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 like anoyan, which is like, what is that? Which uh-huh. doesn't that sound like como? Right, como? <laughs> right. It's so much in the intonation, right? Right, right, right. right. I think, and also you can see I'm speaking with my hands. <laughs> oh, yeah. you got to gesticulate, right? right? Yeah. It doesn't come across on radio, but trust us, folks. It, 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 it helps the process. <laughs> yeah. So I imagine like that really, there's nothing like language to unlock a different part of your brain, right? Mm. And, and to help you understand the place, certainly, yes, like absolutely. when you start start to understand a place and I'm curious what that did to start to see some of those connections 
um, in language, but also in culture, right? Because right. there's a lot of people, especially if, especially if you're like tropical cultures, like draw those draw the Tropic of Cancer all around the globe, you know, right. uh, Indian culture type of thing. Find connection to Miami. Did you feel that uh, in the I years you've been here? Absolutely, felt that from the moment I got here, which is funny. I I was raised mostly in the Midwest, and um, grew up with a lot of snow around me. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, I know. But I mean, yeah. I mean, I have fond memories now that I'm here. Um, but, you know, Listen, I... Listen, snow is cool for about 20 minutes. Yes, absolutely. As long as terrible. you don't have to shovel and you don't have to scrape ice off the windshield. Yeah, I think you're giving uh, PTSD to our listeners who have moved <laughs> down here from up north, for sure. Yeah, but I got here and um, it's really interesting because obviously the Filipinos are Asian American, right? So you would think that there would be this a stronger connection for me culturally with Asian, other Asian cultures. Mm. But I got here, and obviously the Filipinos have been under the same oppressor as many of the Latins here. Right, we all, we all, we all shared a, a common conquistador, right? Yeah, 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 that guy. So, <laughs> so there was something about, and of course, Catholicism, mm -hmm. right? So I got here and... Um, it felt really familiar to me. Mm. Uh, stepping off the plane felt very much like stepping off the plane in uh, MIA, but Manila International Airport. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, like immediately your skin is covered in this, in in humidity. But I guess if it's if it, it sounds terrible, folks, I know, but it's actually comforting. comforting. Yeah, if it feels like home, if it's home, right. it makes you feel at home. Felt it felt good and. Um, and even my parents, when they first started to visit me when I first moved here, used mm. to say, I'm not really sure what this means, but they said, oh, you know, Miami feels like Manila before Marcos. That's interesting that they have that reference point. <laughs> <laughs> right? They go, before Marcos. <laughs> you know? So there was something, yeah, there was, I really felt a connection to, to the, the, the tropics, the subtropics, but also the culture and the people and how warm people were with me, you know. Right. Something that I found uh, so interesting with your background is that, you know, you, you headed the creative writing program at UM for 10 years? Yep, 10 years. Yeah. And uh, I know our, our producer, Elisa, uh, was talking to you about it. She's a UM grad, creative writing She grad. was my advisee. <laughs> <laughs> and isn't she doing great now? I'm so proud of her. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things we talked about was how you encouraged and promoted multilingual writing absolutely in the program and in people's writing yes why was that important for you to do i think uh first of all um, my experience as a writer and writing about my own community and 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 my people mm -hmm. right comes with tagalog it comes with taglish it comes with how the elders speak to us how 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 parents talk to one another when they think the child is not listening. You know, it comes with all of that. And it felt like a very natural thing for me in my own writing. So my experience, having um, gone through uh, academia here in the United States, mm -hmm. is that oftentimes when our stories, when my stories came onto workshop, to be workshopped, uh, there was a lot of time spent having to define words, there was a lot of time having to uh, qualify mm. why this word, why chismes, not gossip, hmm. right? Uh, there was any, even, any of our Spanish speakers will immediately pick that up. Chismes being like like our the, yes. the Spanish chisme. Yeah, right. Gossip, see, right. see connections, right. right? Yeah. So like there were those kinds of questions, and even there was one time a very well-meaning professor said, 
in my one of my workshops. I don't understand why she has uh, a physical appearance of someone who is Asian, but she has a Spanish name. Oh boy! Right. So there's there's a whole lot of that going on. It's just a missing piece of education. It's a missing piece of 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 openness to what, uh, no understanding what the rest of the parts of the rest of the world look like. Right. Yeah. And also, but also it, it it's like this um there it's it kind of pays homage to this idea that there's one way of telling a story mm. and there is one kind of storyteller and there is only one language to tell that story in. So for me and many of my colleagues at the University of Miami, we write in English, but we are either first or second generation immigrant kids, and we come from and tell stories of our community, and those communities use more than one language, mm. and those should be honored. Right, because so much language encapsulates culture right. in a way, in a way that, that um, things can otherwise be lost in translation, you know. Uh, the the show Code Switch on NPR. Yeah, I love that they, show. They they have they call it the explanatory comma, which we've talked about here. Mm. You know, a lot of times you you know you take a little break and you say you know uh, Tagalog, which is the native la the indigenous yeah, language and you of drop whatever. the whole storyline. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Forget where you're going, then now you're off somewhere else. Right. So, talk to me about how you encourage it because that that came around during the time, and we were talking about this earlier about what other. Because Miami has kind of been a, a, a place that's really encouraged that for a long time. Yeah. I'm thinking of like Krikrak, which mm. was uh, Edwidge Dandikat's yes, great Edwidge, book. Yeah. And like she put it right there in the title, you know, a thing that's that's like kind of a, a Haitian cultural um, right. form to kind of say, are we ready for story time? Yes, we are. Um, and there's my explanatory comma. <laughs> uh, and Juno Diaz, who wrote in Drown. My dear friends, yeah. Yeah, so got folks who really embraced multilingual writing. And so... Kind of, uh, these are your peers right, as you're writing. Are. So you yeah. must feel encouraged then. Like, what was the point where where you felt like, I'm going to start doing this and I'm going to not include the explanation in my writing anymore? Well, I think that I myself never did, which is why it was a problem for uh, teachers and peers in those mm -hmm. workshops, right? Mm -hmm. And I even had a friend of mine who was um, a poet, a uh, poet. Uh, Chicano poet who would get so pissed off when he was asked for a glossary of terms, right? Oh, so boy. this for me, um, as um, always a budding activist and a person who will stand up for her own people, mm -hmm. right, in my small and big ways, um, I think that I, 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 I really didn't um, create those little appositives that would explain things, right? Gotcha. Um, I. I think that writing in context has always been something that I personally have been developing and it's something that I'm encouraging my students to do. And and I think we all, right, like uh, my nieces and nephews used to call it, um, uh, read it, like use context clues. Context clues is the, is the phrase that our, my right? kids grew up saying. Yeah. Context mm -hmm. clues, right? And so this is very much what we do. You can write what feels to be very familiar language in, in, in dialogue, in a story, and based on what someone does, right, mm -hmm. in response to what is said, uh, based on maybe they'll answer in English, maybe there'll be silence, and you'll see like a, sort, a certain mood kind of creep into the, onto the page. Mm -hmm. These things tell us what these words mean. And also, we don't always have to know what every single word means. Right. 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 And and you do that in your writing. Like you'll, you know, you might come back in a phrase, in a separate phrase that says, that kind of explains the previous one in, in a different language. 
but in a way that's that's um, that fits, so to speak. That doesn't take you. That doesn't knock right. you off off track. It's, it 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 helps um, to think about the narrative going forward, so that the response to the language then is um, is uh, is helping to the story to go forward, right? right. Wh- whether it's the answer to the question, right? I know, I know. You're right. And then the old timers are pointing me to the gas station, like I'm wondering, what is it? What is it? You know, and, <laughs> right. right? So that kind of thing. But it's it's very much about being um, good readers too, right? Right, right. I feel it's a little bit like uh, if you know, you know it. Like it adds context. Like um, you know, I, I think about like you go see you know the Spider Man movie, and it's got all these clues for people who are big nerds of it. You can yeah. you can just watch it and enjoy it. And if you but if you happen to be intimately associated with this with this material, it adds another layer. Absolutely, and I just want to say on that note mm-hmm. that Ned's Lola is in Spider Man, and that was the most fun moment for me when I heard them talking to Ned's Lola, and Ned's Lola spoke to Galug about how they were keeping the house messy. Really? That they oh, you to clean loved it that? Up. Oh, I loved it. Yeah, because it re- that 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 movie did a lot for. Like it, it talks about multiverse, but it does a lot for multicultural, right? Right, yeah. right, right. And I think that that's why also we were so encouraging of our own writing and our students' writing, right? Mm-hmm. Because these stories, our stories, are very important stories. Right. And and um, the only ones who can tell those stories are ourselves. You know, people will try to tell your story, my story, right? my students' stories. And everybody has an interesting way of telling their stories. They have familial ways, they have cultural ways, they have uh, ways that are connected to their their religion, right? Mm -hmm. There's not just one way, Freitag's way, you know, the rising action climax and denouement. Mm. There are many different ways. And when you give permission, like I'll never forget the first couple years when I was um, assigning Drown to my students. Mm-hmm. Juno Diaz's yeah, book, right? Yeah, Juno Diaz's book. That one of my male students, who I think was like from New York, said, I can write like that? I can write like I talk? That that was giving that young man permission to tell his story. Right, that just opens up something totally different. Our guest today is the author M. Evelina Galong. Her latest book is the short story collection, When the Hibiscus Falls. It's her sixth book. Um, Evelina, so talk to me about tapping into that culture. You grew up in the Midwest, right? You, you were right. born in Pennsylvania? I was born in Pennsylvania. My dad uh, was a physician who moved around a lot. So we moved to like seven different places before we settled in Wisconsin. Oh, boy. Yeah, yeah. So I was always the new kid in school. Oh, wow. That's, yeah. that's got to be tough. It was interesting. <laughs> yeah. Did people get your story? Like you were talking earlier about someone like, why is she speaking Spanish mm-hmm. if she has, has some Asian features or whatever? Right. Did you, how often were you answering that question? Well, you know, it's, it's really interesting because when you're a kid, you don't realize um, what's actually happening, hmm. right? Like you think uh, people, you don't know that people are treating you differently. Hmm. You think that they're just treating you this way, that way, right? And like... I'll never forget my my younger brother, my younger brothers uh, would come home and oftentimes they'd actually get into fist fights, hmm. things like that, right? And then yeah. and then parents would come around and say, "Oh, your kid was using his kung fu on my kid," and you know, and it's oh, like, boy. "What? He doesn't know kung fu. What's that got to do with anything?" Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. So there, I mean, I think it was, and for me, it was more. Um, there was the silence. I, I think the silences are things that I noticed, and then later on when I got to 
kind of wake myself up through education, through meeting other Filipino American women like myself, mm-hmm. start to look back at that time, I could see I could see how those moments were really moments of isolation and um, were connected to um, otherness, connected uh-huh. to you know not being like the rest. Right. Yeah. In those places, how did you find, how did you try to connect to your Filipino culture? Did did it have a place in your life? Up? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So my parents, very much community leaders, um, wherever we went, even though we moved so many times, they were always somehow on the forefront of bringing everyone to the house. Oh, like in what ways? Like head of the PTA or like what? Oh, no, <laughs> like no. Or even, even so... There's a story that I've been telling because it really has stayed with me where when we were in Saskatchewan, Canada for a bit, I was so little that I didn't actually witness this story, but I I was around it when it was happening. There were many uh, nurses coming from the Philippines Mm. who were trying to get housing in uh, Regina. And they were being rejected, like uh, uh, there would be an opening, they'd go take a look at it, and immediately it was unavailable. Mm. So um, going through my my parents' papers, I found this um, article from the newspaper where he was interviewed, my dad was interviewed, where they had gotten everyone together um, from the medical community, the Filipino-American community, or Filipino community, They put on these cultural programs and they spoke to people in the newspapers about like who we were as a people and our culture. And it was a way of talking about, you know, you can you can provide housing for for those of us from our community because this is who we are. I think his thinking was, you know, this is because you don't know who we are. Mm. This turning our, our nurses away is because you don't realize there's nothing to fear here. Right. So that kind of attitude where. Um, my parents would get up and create these these activities uh, for making the people around us aware of who the Filipinos are um, was a way that I grew up, and it was a way that they inculcated that culture within us. And weirdly enough, I always just thought it was because they just happened to be social people. I started to do a little bit more research as I was writing this book and mm-hmm. other things I was doing, and I found this word called kapwa. It's Tagalog, kapwa, and it means... Uh, it's about the Filipino um, self. It's about seeing one oneself and the other, mm. and it's about community. It's about how we take care of one another. It's about how we come together to solve difficulties and problems and struggles. So this thing that I was witnessing, that I've become a part of, that I enact when I invite everyone to my house mm-hmm. and I do my own kinds of activism, is kapwa very much a part of the Filipino community. Right. That Wow. That, that, I, I mean, I feel like there's an analogy with the, you know, it takes a village idea, right? Right. Yeah. Right. You, so we love show and tell here, and you you have a picture uh, in your yes, copy, in the copy of your I book of short stories that you want to. I do. I do. I have. So, so much of the book is about ancestry and le- legacy mm-hmm. and family. So I have, like, during my book tour this summer, I brought these two black and white photographs with me everywhere I went. My ancestors. Wow. So it's my mom side of the family and it's my dad's side of the and family. there's like a dozen people in each, in each oh yeah picture of it, like, big old nice. families big 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 catholic families and, and how does it how does it help you in telling your story right and delving into your story to be able to something as simple as looking at a picture and and oh, being yeah. physically connected right yeah especially when you've been raised in the united states where these families like these my family is here the galangs and the lopestans are in the Philippines. They were in the Philippines. And my whole life, 
there's like this imagination I have or this longing to be part of that community or by the, part of that family, mm. you know, to be at the gatherings because we were in Wisconsin or we were, you know, and isolated from our, our extended family. We had a family that we created, other Filipino families, mm-hmm. uh, our titos, our titas, or tios, or tias, depending on, you know. Right. <laughs> right? But, you know, those 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 family ties were something that I could only long for. So when I take a look at this, these photos, um, it makes me connected to them. It makes me realize I am a part of this legacy. Mm-hmm. But it also makes me realize I also, like uh, in the other direction, have a million nephews and nieces who are the children of my brothers and sisters. And they, they too are looking for those connections. They too are longing for those. And when you get to be second and third generation, what we know, what they know, becomes a little muted, right? Yeah. It begins to disintegrate in some ways. Yeah. The language isn't as clear to them. So, um, the language, the cultural references, the, yeah. yeah, a lot of those things begin to lose their context, right? Right, right. So, so, so tell me about how yeah. you connected to those, to those things. To the, well, you know, I think in telling the stories, mm. you know, and in, in also being uh, immersed in my communities wherever I have been, you know, here, whether it was here or in Chicago or even Iowa State had a few Filipino families there. You know, there's ways, um, especially when I was in Virginia and teaching there, I got very connected to the youth culture there mm. and hearing their stories. So, you know, in, at some point, the stories moved away from my familiar stories to my community stories and listening to what they had to say. And then the imagination kind of takes off there, right. telling the other stories from other parts of the community. Right. There is so much, I think, um, you know, you, you mentioned this about growing up in these communities kind of away from the quote-unquote motherland, let's say, mm-hmm. you know, kind of like the heart of the, the culture. Talk to me about how you connected there because there was a, like you said, you grew up, you grew up culturally, you almost culturally Filipino. Like I grew up culturally Cuban American, but not Cuban, obviously yeah. born here. Tell me about what it was like to actually. When did you get to visit the Philippines, and right. how did and how did that how did that open up new things in your writing? Right. So, um, so when I was like two and three, they had brought me back for a short period of time, right? And n- not much to remember. No, yeah. a lot of photographs. But then I started to do research on the Filipina comfort women of World War II um, in the late 90s. And I went back, I was 33 when I went back. I brought some students with me, some young women who are also of Filipino descent with me. And one day we went to the, my family gathering on a Sunday because that's what our family did. We'd gather everybody together and eat. And I tasted this thing called santol, this this fruit called santol. I had never tasted it here in the United States, but one bite, I remembered. From being a little girl, two, three years old here yeah. when you were visiting. Yeah, and I said, that this is where that taste went. Wow. P- paint me a picture of what that scene was like when you were visiting family again. Oh, wow. Everybody would show up, everybody. A lot of cousins, a lot of cousins' children and their children. And there, when your uh, cousin's kids have their kids, mm-hmm. you're not called tita or tia or whatever. You're called Lola. You're called grandma. Grandma. <laughs> I was like, what? I'm your grandma. I was like, you can't call me grandma. So they would call me Lolita. Oh, that's so funny. Little grandma. <laughs> yeah, little yeah. grandma. But everybody would come. 
and it would be really, really hot, 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 hot. And um, I learned to use a fan, a manual fan, uh-huh. you know, like like that. Uh, and uh, it would be stories, and they would bring they would bring photographs like these yeah. to share with me and talk about when I was a little girl there, or when my parents were uh, there as um, young people. So it was very much, um, and it felt familiar, even though it was really so. That was before I came to Florida, right? So those those feelings of like the humidity and the heat and the and the and the the uh, sounds of the city, right? And the traffic, all of that was new and yet it felt so familiar. And it feels like something that leads us right into a perfect time for you to maybe read a, a piece from your book because sure. I think it speaks to both Manila but it also speaks to Miami and and why when you got here, you know, it it evoked some of those feelings. Yeah, it felt like home. So um, I'm going to read just a little bit, just a, a moment here from a story called... We got um, time. It's fine. Yeah, it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> um, called uh, The Typhoon is a Hurricane. I'm going to say, you'll, you'll know. You'll know what it means. <laughs> Salit walked up and down their street, stepping around debris, slipping under eaves of broken branches, She saw no sign of the crews, not working on her neighbors' houses, not on the apartment buildings a block over, not fixing street lamps on the boulevard around the bend, seven days without electricity. The heat was manila heat. Piles of garbage, broken furniture, and storm debris were stacked along the sides of the road. Unbearable sunshine made everything stink. Back home, near Dagatan, there was a trash heap called Smoky Mountain. Salit used to ride past on her way to nursing school and see the wisps of smoke trailing from different parts of the hill. Now, palm fronds and trunks of fallen mango trees were pulled into the side of the road. Banyan trees, tipped to their sides, exposed gnarly roots, 15 feet in in diameter, their branches reaching up like arms in motion. The old trees were dying, the lushness of Miami had grown brown and crisp as autumn. And that was the name of the the typhoon is um, the typhoon is a hurricane, which is like perfect timing for uh, folks in Florida who are who are, who are getting uh, reintroduced to what it means to live through a hurricane up right north now. And talk to me about some of the things that when you st- when you came to Miami, when you start to see those connections, what were some of the things that immediately made it feel like? culture like the culture that you were familiar with well the people yeah. really the people the um uh, i so i moved into i eventually moved into this house that had abuelas to my left and abuelas to my right there were <laughs> sisters on one side and those 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 lolas or abuelas uh were really connected in every way every emotion from high to low to the fighting to everything connected to the uh, abuela to my other side who was living by herself and they'd go back and forth and sometimes they'd have the conversation there in front of the house my house they knew everything that was going on with me even though i never said anything <laughs> uh you know all of that made me feel so like so at home and charmed they very much charmed me into um being a part of their neighborhood yeah um they called me china in fact 
today. That, it's it's a very Latin thing to like. Did you find that too? That and you wrote that in one of your stories too. Mm-hmm. One of your characters is at yeah. a grocery store, and an abuelita says, yeah, "Sorry, China, China yeah. or something like that." Yeah, yeah. They they call me China, and this is interesting. If probably I was in Iowa and someone called me China, I'd probably be angry. <laughs> <laughs> but here you didn't have that reaction. But yeah, I did not have that reaction. I felt um, I felt like uh, there was some kind of. In fact, I felt there was some kind of um, affinity that was happening between me and you know. Usually it was it was my neighbors. You know, China. Um, there was that. There's also like I said, I had just come back from being a year in Manila, and the first place I lived was because I didn't know any better. I was in. I mean, no, that's not a. That's not a insult but I did I lived so far away from the university I lived in one of the suburbs of Manila of, of, of Miami mm-hmm. I, I used to call it Kendalia Kendalia yeah <laughs> we call it Kendali sometimes too <laughs> so far away and so I was experiencing that crazy traffic which I enjoyed I'd play the Latin music on the radio and really made myself at home but it that also reminded me of those moments in Manila so I kind of felt like I had this transition from living in the Midwest doing this Fulbright and being in the Philippines for a year and then coming back here and it was an extension of that and a transition back into um, the United States but a different very different kind of United States than that I was used to right I'm, I'm so curious how you know we don't end up just writing about the past, like the things that we live through now begin to affect what we're interested in and yes. what we want to write about. And, mm-hmm. I'm, and I'm curious how those pieces have come together, being in Miami for 20 years and growing up in the Midwest and having a connection to Manila. What, what things do you find yourself interested in? Like, what did that spark in you? Wow. Well, I spent 20 years um, uh, researching, and I came here and I was in the midst of my research, researching and working on uh, the stories of surviving comfort women of World War II. Mm. Um, the Lolas. And so in between all of that, I was living my life here in Miami. And there were things, in fact, there are things that uh, my students influenced me. (laughs) Oh, in what way? They, well, so they seem to be very interested in the last year or so. And those of you who are listening, who are my students, who were in 390 or 404 in the recent two years, you know who you are. (laughs) Um, They're really into speculative fiction into world building, into imagining things that are um, not quite like real, mm-hmm. uh, which I always had. I was always like, "Oh, we're writing real, realistic fiction," and um, that's not really what they were into in in many ways. And so, they actually got me um, thinking about what life is like when it's not real, right? And so, in the in the collection, there is a story. There are a couple times when I I, I leave. Um, present action, present day, mm-hmm. and the story either um, looks into the future, as as um, as I think the title story does uh, when the hibiscus falls, but also imagines what Miami might look like in the future. And in these ways, not you don't just influence your students with your with your knowledge and your teaching and your the technique and what have you, but then they begin to influence your writing. And what's so interesting is to see the. I mean, like I'm influenced daily by the the young women that I work with you know who are in their 20s and yeah. I'm like twice their age and it's like I love knowing how I'm I'm influenced by them and it and you have a story that was influenced you can read a bit of a story yeah, that was I, influenced I I will, by yeah. the way they're worldly right yeah they're they're um they 
in many ways, like my job, I feel is to is to um, give them permission to write their stories, hmm. but also to teach them the tools, to give them the tools. <clears throat> and in some ways, what working with them and and hearing them and listening to them, they um, they open up my imagination hmm. and, and they want me to try different things in my own work. So this, uh, I'm just going to read the opening of this story called The Kiss, which takes place in Miami many years from now. And you will see why. I don't know if you got a chance to read it, Carlos, but I'm going to share just a little bit of it. Wonderful. And um, and this actually is, is for those students who encouraged me. The Kiss. Prudence Mercado watched the dark clouds approaching. From her penthouse garden high above the Atlantic Ocean, she could smell the rain. Directly overhead, the sky was cloudless, blue, but she could see the storm drifting east, the rain falling in dark sheets across the horizon. Should we go inside, asked her nurse. Not yet, she answered. Prudence pulled her sweater tight around her torso. The breeze made her feet kissed by the sea, make her, made her feel kissed by the sea. Benita will be here soon. We can go in from then. Prudence placed two hands on her walker. The nurse moved toward her, but Prue waved her away. Akona, let me help. I said I can do it. She waved the nurse away. She shifted her weight and pulled herself up. She released a deep breath. Let me not, let me walk now. Prudence surveyed the roof garden as she wound her way around eureka palms, gardenia bushes, and, and banana plants, her garden in the sky. Around the bend were gumamella, red and orange and hot pink blossoms splayed open like the skirts of whirling dervishes. She reached down to pluck a flower, examined the petals, and, turning to the penthouse railing, tossed the offering to the sea. All around the high-rise, the ocean hissed. The city, built on steel beams and concrete stilts, reminded Prudence of the archival photos she had seen of Nipa huts perched on bamboo stilts and hovering over monsoon-swollen rice paddies. Her lolololos barangay rode boats down a river of streets, passing tables, chairs, and dressers, set adrift from month-long storms. That must have been something, that time long ago, when people were cast and organized by the color of skin, by the faith they practiced, by the money gathered, held onto, and spent, when men and women were unequal, when people raised a fist to the sky to proclaim their heritage. Their heritage. Those times. That was the time before the story revolution. That was Evelina Galang reading the story The Kiss from her new collection, When the Hibiscus Falls. I love that we're getting so many images there of the future and it's, you know, of this kind of speculative Miami in the future where it's like this um, floating city on stilts, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it kind of evokes fishing villages, which you've written about. Yes. Um, and then also, like, maybe a future more egalitarian than we're in now. That's right. So, like, maybe a flooded city, but more egalitarian. Maybe we'll take those things. Maybe, but maybe <laughs> it creates more trouble. I don't know. We'll okay, see. Okay, <laughs> we'll have to finish the rest of the story. Talk to me about, about being able to write um, with that authority over a culture that you grew up, you grew up in pockets, but not, you know, in other words, not, right. not Manila, but this Manila that your family creates wherever they live. Right. Well, I think that that is, um, that that experience that I have is probably not unlike, I want to say, most immigrant family experiences, mm -hmm. right? Where we're not exactly 
like you were saying, not exactly Cuban, not exactly Filipino, uh, but not exactly uh, the dominant American white culture. Yeah, no hamburgers being made by your parents at home. That's uh, right. right. Although my mom th- did make like Filipino burgers. What's a Filipino burger look like? Uh, it has um, onions that are cooked inside oh. the meat. Sounds amazing. Uh, it has a cracked egg in it. It has garlic and soy sauce. That sounds like an amazing American burger. And we eat it with rice. Yes, I love it. <laughs> What's the, is it, does it have a particular name or is it just un invento? Uh, it's just something that my mom used to make, right? It was like her version of like you, and actually it is an answer to the question you're asking, right? So it is like, she wasn't gonna buy into that entire burger scene, right? Mm-hmm. But it was gonna, it was still gonna have this influence of the Filipino, culture that we that she was raised on right so a little bit and so there so I think for many of us there's always like that tension of um, like being American outside of the house when you're at school and then entering the house and being in our case Filipino and and living by Filipino rules living by Filipino culture living by Filipino um, uh, religion Mm. and so I think that oftentimes actually that tension between trying to maintain the culture at home and also raising the kids with that same, those same kind of strict rules becomes a tension because the, the kids are students outside in the world. They're, like, they're making their way in the world and there's a clash between those kind of rules. So I think um, for myself, that was always interesting. Like I never got to go to sleepovers. Yeah, same here. Same here. That's not. It's 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 a cultural thing too about sleepovers. The whole sleepover thing. Never got to do it, you know. And 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 so many other things like when when it was appropriate to date, how late you could stay out, like all those things, those kinds of tensions. But I think you know, really to answer your question, in the household, we were very much raised with that. And then these these family photos where you find out like, this is your Lolo, this is your Lola, this is what they do in the Philippines. And then you have that longing that 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 kind of tie to them. Um, And so what adds context to to your life, like why your why your parents are asking you or telling you to do certain things, right? Yes, absolutely. And also, man, my dad and my mom were um, big time storytellers, my dad especially. And so we had a lot of stories about him growing up as a boy during World War II, you know, and the the nation's relationship, the Philippines' relationship to the United States, right? And like he used to love to say, we were the Philippines was uh, let me see if I can get this right now, like uh, three hundred years in the convent and fifty years in Hollywood, <laughs> you know, like so we had it growing up all the time, right? So I feel like, and and the Filipino American lifestyle or stories that I that I am uh, writing about imagining portraying are seen through the lens my lens so they're not they're not the only kind of um, Filipino American experience out there and I never mean for them to be that I mean for them to be very particular connected to the characters on the page um, and they have um, a subjective point of view because they have to. I mean, and that's, I think, when you talk, when people talk about diversity of voices, it doesn't mean that you have 
one writer who has a Filipino background, and this speaks to all people of this generation. It's right. it's making room for more singular individual stories that then together make up a... And the, our interests. I mean, I just had this fantastic conversation with uh, Gina Apostol because her book, La Tercera, came out. She's Filipino-American. Filipino, really. Filipino living in America. Maybe Filipino-American now. I, I don't know, Gina. <laughs> uh, but like, we had this a really interesting conversation because both of our books deal with um, Filipino, uh, Filipino, Filipino-American uh characters, but uh, language is used in a much different way. She also has Tagalog, but she also has um, Visayan and Waray in there, and uh, she also has a, a way of using language differently than my characters do, because it's a different perspective. she's a different person mm-hmm. with a different perspective. You know, you, you talk about these folks in your family who are really are storytellers, and if they're able to connect you with your ancestors and it's a thing that you end up writing about, mm-hmm. I'm curious, who were the storytellers in your life that really encouraged this to be a part of your, for this to be a career? Who were the folks who encouraged you to tell stories? Mm. Wow, that's a really good question. I think that in, in, in some ways, I keep talking about them, um, but I think that my parents in different ways, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you said they were activists. Yeah, they're, in, in their own ways. ways they were activists. You know, they were like, they were out there doing doing their thing. And like, you know, my mom, actually she got her, uh, she, she was here in the United States getting her master's in English at Marquette when she met my father. They met here in the United States. And uh, she was very much the one who encouraged us to be readers and to be reading out loud and to be um, to be active in that practice of reading and to love reading. Mm. Um, so I think that she's very much um, uh, an influence that way. And then my dad just sitting at the table or meeting people anywhere, um, always asking people the questions, always wanting to know their story and really happy to tell his story too, right? Right, striking so, up those conversations, right? Yeah, those conversations become really interesting ways into um, storytelling, right? Right. So I think in those in in that way, but I think you know, um, I also had teachers who saw something in me. I, I I look now at my work that I wrote as a child, as a college student, as a grad student, and all of it kind of makes me cringe a little bit. Of course, yeah. Um, and <laughs> if I we think, look back, yeah, and I think that my teachers, you know, um, my writing teachers. Uh, saw potential in me, and that's the thing that we do. We see the potential in any in any emerging writer, and encouraged me to tell my story. So I think all, I'm not going to name one teacher because there were so many of them. You you talked a little earlier about you know talking about influences and and thinking about your parents, and you mentioned your activism. In what ways do you try to be an activist? Well, you know, um, there are there are a couple different ways. And I would say that when I first started writing the stories of the Filipina comfort women of World War II and mm-hmm. do, researching their stories, I didn't think of it that way. I actually thought of it as um, because the women approached me and said, when we were with them at one point, and said, when are you going to sit us down and interview us? Oh, wow. That's so interesting. When are you going to tell our stories? Because I was interviewing them to learn their stories so I could write um, a screenplay, which actually became eventually became um, Angel de la Luna and the Fifth Glorious Mystery, my oh, novel. Wow. Yeah. And and so it was for fiction, you know, but they were like, no, no, no. When are you going to tell our stories? And when Our like, real stories. Yeah. And the, when the Lola tells you what to do and asks you when you're going to do it, you do it. <laughs> you do it right. That's the next thing you do, that's right? That's the next thing you do. I thought it would be like, you know, a year. It was like 20 years. Wow, that you you've know? just been working on that over the years. Yeah, and, and, and learning their stories. So I think... 
I actually, wow, I just, I kind of forgot. When I think of them, like my mind goes to them. So when I started working with them, it was just to tell their stories. But then I got involved with um, what they were fighting for. They were silent for, they, so in case people don't know, surviving comfort women of World War II, we think that there were over 400,000 all over the uh, countries that Japanese occupied during the war. And there were these young women and girls who were taken and placed into military sex slave camps and held and raped multiple times in a day, in a week, in a year. So that is the experience of these 400,000 women. Wow. In the Philippines, they think there were 1,000 women. And so I started to, like, listen to the Lola stories. And that be, that became a, a subject of, I think, maybe your only nonfiction book, really. Yeah, it's yeah. It's the title again. Lola's House, Filipino Women uh, Living with War. And, you know, you start to hear their stories. Like, they would take their hands, my hands, and bring them to to the wounds, my fingers, and trace their wounds, their war wounds. Mm. You know, uh, and then you see, what is it that they're fighting for? They're fighting, they're still fighting for, after all these years, a formal apology from the Japanese government reparations for everything they lost during the war, and um, a decent and honest place in history books. Those three things. That's what they were fighting for. So when I got involved with them and I started uh, researching their stories, I found myself on the streets with them. I found myself in Congress. I was one of the persons who really led the Filipino-American voice of House Resolution 121 and got that passed with um, Congressman Mike Honda's uh, his he was the author of that, and it was and Ileana was our representative here in Ileana's Florida. Russ yes, mm-hmm. yes, and she was very much a proponent of that. So um, in those ways, I was I was acting as you know I was an activist, and my students uh, joined me uh, in that. What, um, going from community to community and reading testimonies of the women and sharing their stories. I'm curious what what. You know, you've had this career where you it's so much about you, you spend discovering yourself and then discovering this whole culture that mm-hmm. becomes new to you. And I'm curious what you're interested in writing now. Oh. There's so much that I'm interested in re, uh, in writing. I've got two novels that I'm working on. Mm, okay. One is in its uh, it's in um, it's in a one and a half draft and many many years of research there. It's a love story between two old people. Um, and I don't know if I want to say too much about it, but it's, um, yeah, it's it's a love story, which I'm not really a big love story person, but it also has a lot of history behind it. Uh, kind of leaping off of the comfort woman story and having somebody interested in an old woman who happens to be Japanese American. So if you know anything about history, you know right there, there's going to be so much conflict and does he get the girl or not? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you got and 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 so and does Miami? Do you find Miami playing a, a larger role in the things that you're writing about and you're interested in? I think. Well, yes, abs- yes, uh, I think so. I mean, just by virtue of the fact, you know, these short stories when they came together were really um, stories that were written in between my larger projects. And as you can see, as I've been reading, you know, Miami does become not not like the subject matter, but the the place that holds the story, and you know, uh, place setting and and culture very much influence the direction a story will go in. So I feel like yeah, there's uh, there's there's like a lot of Miami in the work to come. 
Well, I, I hope that uh, folks will be able to find uh, find all of that in your work. Thank you so much, Evelina, for spending the hour with us. Thank you, Carlos. Our guest today was the author M. Evelina Galong. Her latest book is the short story collection, When the Hibiscus Falls. It's her sixth book, and she'll be at the Miami Book Fair later this year. And that's Sundown for Wednesday, August 30th. Leslie Obaya Atkinson is our lead producer. Elisa Baena is our producer and social media editor. Sergio Bustos is WLRN's VP of News, and Katie Munoz is our director of live programming. Peter J. Meritz is WLRN's VP of Radio. Richard Ives is our engineer. Our theme music is by the Miami Afro-Cuban funk band Palo at gopalo.com. You can download a podcast of this program. Just search for WLRN Sundial on your podcast app. Coming up tomorrow on the program, WLRN's education reporter Kate Payne will be speaking with the founder and artistic director of Miami New Drama. It's among the largest bilingual theater companies in the country. I'm Carlos Frias. Good vibes only. Public Media.